How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're uh, properly oriented to the God the Holy Spirit and for the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit to take place, that uh, we are spiritually prepared to focus on the teaching of God's Word because it is through God the Holy Spirit that we are able to learn the Word and it is assimilated into our soul spiritually so that we can. it is beneficial for our spiritual growth and uh, for application. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I begin. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to fellowship around the study of your word, that we are taught that it is your word that is the efficacious element in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we come to understand these truths, and he's the one who assimilates these things for us, puts it together in our soul, recalls it to our mind so that uh, times of testing, times of decision-making, that we can apply your word. Father, we come to understand that it is through your word that we are sanctified, that is experientially set apart for your service, and that it is through the use of your word in our lives that God the Holy Spirit uh, conforms us to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is through your word that we come to understand how to properly evaluate the issues of life that surround us. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that we might once again come to a greater understanding of who you are, of your grace, and of your goodness, and of the scope of your plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Just as a side note, as this week I've made comments here and there regarding this uh, uh, day of prayer that's going to take place, this, this event called The Response, that happens to take place right here in Houston this coming Saturday at Reliance Stadium. And along with the email I sent out earlier, I read another article today that was very well uh, written and explained a lot of the uh, different groups, radical groups, that are associated with this particular event. I'll probably uh, have Connie um, email that out uh, to everybody tomorrow just for your general uh, education and edification. It's interesting that when I sent that article out the first time, or maybe it was a second follow-up when I attached that one article that I had written on the Kansas City Prophets from back in 91, I had two responses. And, and the first response was from uh, an individual who said, why in the world do pastors get involved in, in, in talking about something like this? Why is this even important? You need to be teach, studying and teaching and helping your congregation grow to spiritual maturity. And he said, you know, when it comes to false teaching like this, this kind of stuff, you don't really need to know this all this kind of detail 
because, uh, and then he used a time-honored illustration that um, when they train bank tellers to spot counterfeits, what they do is they teach them to to know the, the, the genuine article so well that they can easily tell or spot something that's, uh, that's fraudulent. The second response that I got was that, aren't we being just a little bit too divisive? And that's, that's interesting because that's, that is a response that's out there in the Christian community. I want to address the first one first. And my response to the individual was, well, first of all, we have to understand that if a the part of the role of the pastor is to help the sheep keep from eating poisonous weeds, because if it's not the pastor pointing out what those poisonous weeds are, the sheep will never figure it out. We're called sheep. That's not because we're cute and fuzzy. It's because we're really stupid. Notice I said we. God didn't say the pastors weren't sheep either. We're, we we God calls us sheep, and it's not a compliment. So we have to come to understand this stuff because the the, the deception of the of of Satan, as as Paul states in Second Corinthians, is is so great. He's an angel of light who goes about deceiving, uh, as it were, even the elect, because his counterfeits get more and more sophisticated. And that goes to the second illustration. I have heard that illustration. I think my entire Christian life. It is used in many different books and writings, and many different pastors have used that to avoid teaching people anything about the cults or the exacts and spasms of the local church. The problem is that several years ago, I actually talked to a secret service agent who, and and that's their treasury agents, and they also know about counterfeits, and they have to train people on all the uh, sophisticated nuances of counterfeiting because the more sophisticated and accurate a counterfeit becomes, the more difficult it is to spot it just by knowing the genuine article. You do have to know some of the things that counterfeiters do in order to produce the counterfeits. And um, and you have to be able to spot those things. So people need to know these things, and they need to understand these slight little variations that may not seem to be a whole lot in the minds of some people, but they do have serious and significant uh, ramifications and consequences. And a number of these groups that have become associated with this event on Saturday uh, are believe in the continuation of what was called the five-fold ministry. And those are the five different categories of spiritual leaders that are identified in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, apostles and prophets and uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And in their view, because this whole kind of heresy came out of the charismatic, or at that time it was only the Pentecostal movement, and it came out of the Pentecostal movement, and it was part of what was known as the healing revivals. Now, most people in in non-charismatic churches or non-charismatic backgrounds just don't have any familiarity with this at all, which is one reason I sent some of that material out in the link so that you can become a little bit familiar with, with some of this stuff, but this occurred. Oral Roberts came to prominence in the healing revivals of the late 40s and a, and a number of others, and many of them bought into various uh, really strange doctrines. They believed in the renewal of the, of the gift of apostle, and we were in the last days. And the last days there would be a restoration. That's why one term that's used of this is restorationism, 
there would be a restoration of the uh, all of the gifts of the of the apostolic age and a restoration of the uh, offices in, in the early church and the gifts of apostle. There would be new apostles and there would be new prophets. And they went back into the Old Testament and took passages that talked about the early reigns and the latter reigns, which should have been understand, understood and interpreted literally in the context because in Israel you get rain early in the spring for the crops and then at the end in the fall, and that's the early rains and the latter rains. It's, it's literal in an agricultural context. But they took that to mean that at the beginning of the church there would be a reign of the Holy Spirit, and at the end of the church there would be this reigning, R-A-I-N, reigning of the Holy Spirit. And it, it, it was part and parcel of, a, of charismatic revivalism. Now, the Assembly of God, which is a charismatic denomination, a Pentecostal denomination, rather, recognized this, and they, they did an investigation into all of this and declared all these people heretics. So it's legit. In, in, in one sense, this is truly heresy. That's not, sometimes people say, oh, so-and-so is just a heretic, and that's really what they mean by it is they don't agree with me. But her- heresy is something that is more than just teaching something that is perhaps not correct with Scripture. It, go, it goes to some very significant core doctrines. And this is uh, related to pneumatology and pneumatological heresy, and it's built on mysticism. And one of the key, um, and in the history of this development, um, there was a uh, a man named Peter Wagner who's quite uh, has become one of the chief theologians and spokes uh, people for this uh, this new apostolic reformation or the new apostolic period. And um, I actually interviewed him back in the late '80s, and he and a man named John Wimber became quite infamous. Yeah, Dan, hold up the book, show and tell for everybody. There's a Peter Wagner's book, Dominion, and you know we're trying to keep Dan from going into this. I'm just saying that in jest. He's educating himself on this, and um, Peter Wagner and a, this guy named John Wimber, who come out of kind of a Quaker background, non-charismatic Quaker background taught at Fuller Seminary in, in uh, Pasadena, California. And they taught a course called A Course in... Uh, it was cor- Signs and Wonders and A Course in Miracles. And they were doing the most bizarre stuff. And it was like anything that happened that was you could attach the label supernatural to, then that was the Holy Spirit. You, you, just, you, you only tried to apply any kind of evaluation much later. We didn't want to stifle the Holy Spirit in any way. And this is what happens when myst- any form of mysticism is allowed to develop. Mysticism is not biblical. Mysticism confuses the objective ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who works subjectively but not without true objective verifications that's why I still call it objective, because ultimately you have to be able to say, how do I know God has spoken to me? And it's not just something that my own subconscious or my own intuition or my own sin nature has generated within my, my head. You have to be able to say, 
and answer the question, why do I know objectively and truly that this is God speaking? That's why uh, God gave Moses the two tests for prophets back in the Old Testament so that there would be objective verification validation. Somebody can't just come along and say, God has spoken to me without being able to back it up biblically with objective verification. But that's been ignored in the whole charismatic movement. So that developed into the 70s. And in the 80s, there were three seminary professors at Dallas Seminary that got sucked into this. And uh, that's where uh, it was just prior to my going back to Dallas to work on my doctoral work. And so uh, since I was majoring in uh, historical theology, I thought that uh, with the problems that are often presented to non-charismatic churches from charismatic churches that I would have an emphasis in uh, in the uh, history of the Pentecostal church. So I went out to some of the conferences of the Vineyard Movement and was involved in this, and it's just gotten so much worse. And I met a lot of the key players that uh, that were there at that time and became very still influential. So it's it's really, but they are truly heretical. And there is an issue in Christianity, and the Scriptures teach that we are to separate and not associate and not fellowship with certain believers, believers who are involved in known, continued, habitual, gross sin that even even offends unbelievers. And when it's no, and I said no, not just known by a few people, but something that is objectively known that we are not to associate with them. And in Second John 9 and 10, we're not to associate with those who are false teachers. Uh, in, in the context of Second John, uh, these itinerant teachers would come to people's houses, and, and uh, as, I, as even the apostles did, and would expect to be given room and board as they came to teach and, and present the word. And John says in Second John that they were not even to allow them to come inside the door. Uh, don't eat with them. Don't let them come into your house. Don't do anything that indicates that you're giving any approval to what they are doing. And so it's, it's, it's one thing to be involved in a non, I'm going to use the term religious event, a non-religious issue such as the support of Israel, uh, certain political issues that are not religious in their basic orientation, and we can join and unite with people of different backgrounds, beliefs, whether they're Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, secular atheists, whatever they are. That's not a problem. We can make common cause together. But when you have a specifically Christian event, and you associate with people who are in Christian, true Christian heresy, that violates every principle of the Word of God. And that is why this event is, has created a lot of controversy, and there have been a, just a minority of nationally known ministries who have taken a stand against what is going on, and they have just been castigated and reviled by all of these other Christian groups because they're not going along. And uh, it's really uh, sad to see this because we live in an age where doctrine is seen as something that divides as opposed to doctrine being that which is the foundation of unity. 
And in Ephesians chapter 4, at the beginning of that chapter, Paul talks about the unity of the faith. You know, it's not unity at the expense of the faith. It is a unity that is based on the faith, on Bible doctrine. And so we understand that there are going to be some people who may be may not be dispensationalists. There may be some Christians who uh, may be more Arminian. There may be some Christians that are more Calvinist, and and that's okay. They're 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 wrong, but they have a right to be wrong. But that doesn't mean they're not in heresy. But when they're denying the deity of Christ or when they're denying the cessation of revelation or when they're uh, stating that there's ongoing uh, uh, apostles and prophets with that same authority, then you're getting into real genuine uh, heresy that causes incredible confusion and division within the body of Christ. So... Almost every day this week, watch the papers tomorrow, and it'll be really interesting to see what's in the Chronicle on on uh, Saturday and on Sunday related to this event. The sad thing is that these are usually written by enemies of Christianity who are outside the camp. But remember, there's always two kinds of enemies of the church. There are those who are in the camp and those who are outside the camp. And in this case, we 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 decided to only, or some groups have decided to only focus on those that are outside the camp and have allowed the wolves to come in. Paul stops in Acts 17, Paul stops in Ephesus and goes to Miletus. He doesn't make it all the way to Ephesus. He's on his on the ship going back to Jerusalem, and he calls for the pastors in Ephesus to come down and to meet with him, and he warns them of the danger of, of wolves who come in to the congregations and uh, and warns them to be careful because that have, of how destructive that is. So that's what we have to do. Okay, back to Romans. Romans chapter 2. Last couple of weeks, last couple of lessons, or really the last two weeks, I was gone last week, week before I started the doctrine of circumcision, understanding the spiritual significance of circumcision. And the ultimate issue here, if you want to subsume them, this into a broader category, the broader category is understanding the difference between grace and works, understanding the difference between a God-performed and supplied and freely given salvation and a salvation that is merited or earned by the individual. And circumcision itself became the focal point of the battle that occurred between the Jewish, especially the Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah, and those that didn't. And so as we start off here, I want to point out what Paul says in Romans 2, verse 25 where he emphasizes it's not that circumcision, he never says circumcision is wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. He says, he knows he says, for circumcision is profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And notice this is actually a chiasm within the verse. You have circumcision is your A point, Keeping the law or your relation to the law is the B point, so it's A, B, B, A. The focal point here is on the issue of keeping the law or breaking the law. 
That's what makes the difference. It wasn't circumcision. It was your orientation to the law. If you, if a person could keep the law a hundred percent, then, uh, that was the issue. If they broke the law, it didn't matter if they were circumcised or not, because the issue was their relationship to the law, which is, in this case, which was a, a basis for the exhibition of righteousness. So Paul says that circumcision is profitable if you are completely keeping the law. It doesn't mean you get saved. It's just that it has spiritual profit, spiritual benefit as a Jew. But if you're a breaker of the law, it doesn't matter what ritual you do. You're still a lawbreaker and under condemnation. So that brought us to the topic of circumcision. Now, um, last time I ran through, we just got through about the first four points. I want to review them quickly this time because there are some people here who weren't here the last time. The first point is that circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of the male genit- uh, genital organ. The Hebrew word is mul, which became uh, pronounced, has come to be pronounced due to the influence of, of Yiddish as moil. And so if you go to a bris, which is the circumcision ceremony of a, on the eighth day of a uh, after the eighth day after the birth of a Jewish baby boy, the moil is the uh, trained rabbi, medically trained rabbi, who comes in and performs the bris and performs the circumcision. So that moil is from this Hebrew word mul. Second point was that circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was saved before God told him to be circumcised. Abraham was already uh, uh, granted the covenant by God in grace before he was circumcised. Circumcision was an after effect to demonstrate as a visible sign uh, a, a reality that already existed. It's similar to baptism in that way. Baptism is something that comes after salvation, and it is something that is simply a ritual to depict what has already taken place. It has no uh, effectiveness on its own. Genesis 17, 10, and 11 is the core passage, the central passage for establishing circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Third point I pointed out was that circumcision was already practiced in many different ways by different cultures in the ancient Near East, but it is given a new significance and a spiritual meaning in the Old Testament in the Abrahamic uh, covenant. And then the fourth point was uh, just a brief discussion on circumcision in post-Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism is a term that describes the development of Judaism within the uh, context of the Second Temple after the Jews returned from Babylon and under Zerubbabel they built the Second Temple. But the major concern in Second Temple Judaism was how do we keep from uh, violating the law uh, so that we don't end up being scattered to the four corners of the earth again. And the, res- the problem with that was that what caused their being scattered was idolatry. So they were going to go to the other extreme, leave idolatry, and go to legalism and construct a, a works system. And this developed over three or four centuries. It didn't happen overnight. Just gradualism, just a little bit here and a little bit there. 
uh, to come up with various traditions so that they, it would uh, uh, prevent them, that was the idea, to prevent them from breaking the, any of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. But especially after the first century and after the destruction of the Second Temple and with the rise of Christianity and in the context of the conflict between uh, the Pharisees and Pharisaic understanding of the law and Christianity, you have the, the beginnings of rabbinical Judaism. And you have uh, an emphasis on on works and merit. And they understood in the second, third, fourth centuries, they understood circumcision to be uh, salvific because it was the shedding of blood. And I pointed out uh, Ezekiel 16, verse 6, uh, God is speaking to uh, Israel as a nation, and he's uh, talking somewhat allegorically here about the nation like a child who's been left by the side of the road. And he says, And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. And the point here is that it is God who gave life to the nation Israel through his call of Abraham. But that's not how it was interpreted by the rabbis. And in a uh, in the Talmud, we have a statement reference to uh, Rabbi uh, Matthiah ben Karish, and uh, he's quoted quite extensively in this one particular chapter uh, in relationship to uh, his understanding of Ezekiel 16.8. And he, I, he interprets it allegorically. And I re- read through this last time, so I'm not going to repeat it this time. But he says in the middle there in the sentence underlined, he says, but as yet, that is at the time when a- Abraham is recognized and the nation is born, he says, there were no commandments to perform, to perform by virtue of which they might merit redemption. The Hebrew word for commandment is a mitzvah. The plural is a mitzvahot. Mitzvah is a big word in Judaism. And so what he is saying is that at that time there was no mitzvah, there was no commandment to follow, uh, and it's by do, performing the mitzvah, and this is what becomes the core of Judaism, is you have to perform these the mitzvah, the commandments of God, the mitzvahot, the commandments of God, to merit or earn redemption. And his last statement is, uh, one cannot obtain reward except by deeds. What he fails to understand is salvation's a gift, rewards are earned. And there's a distinction between rewards and salvation. Jacob Neuster, who's a contemporary uh, Jewish writer in an article on circumcision in the Encyclopedia of Ju- uh, Judaism, points out that in that the early period of uh, this age, in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, uh, he said, regularly, therefore, we find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general, so they clearly saw circumcision as necessary for salvation. Uh, not only do we see the salvific nature of the rite in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. And it's that interesting. They see that it is by the shedding of blood that there's remission of sins. But see that... Only in Christianity do you have the shedding of blood of one who is impeccable, one who is sinless, one who is like the uh, lamb that is without spot or blemish, who can pay truly pay the price for sin for others. 
Neusner goes on to say, at any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources. But then he goes on to say that this this was dropped from Judaism so that now it's it's not an issue. It's just a historic or traditional rite. Then I looked at some Old Testament passages. Uh, as we went through key passages, looked at Genesis uh, seventeen twenty-three to twenty-seven as the foundational passage for the for circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, then I looked at uh, passages in uh, Exodus, for example, Exodus twelve forty-four uh, 40, and twelve forty-eight, emphasizing the significance God placed on circumcision to separate Jews from non-Jews. And then, but here in, and, and this would be my sixth point, the fifth point being uh, central biblical text, rather, and, and then within the context of looking at central biblical text, we look at this particular passage, uh, Le- Leviticus 26.41, because it introduces for the first time the idea that there is a spiritual circumcision and a spiritual uncircumcision. And in Leviticus 26.41, Moses said that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. This is in the context of the fifth cycle of discipline. And the reason that the Jewish people are kicked out of the land is for pride and arrogance. That's the, the symbolic value of an uncircumcised heart, as we'll see in just a minute. Uh, if their uncircumcised hearts are humble, see, there's the contrast. Uh, the uncircumcised heart is arrogant and proud towards God. It's rejected God, turned to idolatry. But if they turn back to God and humble themselves, then God will restore them to the land. That's the context of Leviticus 26.41. We see the same idea in Deuteronomy 10.16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That is, there's a removal of something. There's a removal of the flesh. But now the flesh takes on a spiritual meaning and symbolic meaning, which is it relates to the removal, as we see when we get into the New Testament, the removal of the power of the sin nature. And the contrast in Deuteronomy 10.16 is between the uncircumcised heart which is stiff-necked, and being stiff-necked is an idiom in Hebrew for being arrogant and rebellious. Now, the solution eventually is going to be a grace solution from God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which comes in a section of talking about how God will restore the Jews to the land from all the uh, nations uh, to which he scatters them, and when they repent, or that is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, literally when they turn, when they shoot, when they turn back to God, uh, the Lord will circumcise, this is future tense, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, which means true humility, and the heart of your descendants. And the result of that humility, and it's interesting to see the connection here, you can't love without humility. If you're arrogant, you can't love. These are, these are mutually exclusive. You have to have your heart, you have to have humility to love. So to really love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, there has to be a spiritual act upon the heart, which we would relate also to regeneration. But this leads to, or at least implies, what will 
ultimately take place in the future when God establishes the new covenant with the house of Jacob and the house of Israel. And this is described in Ezekiel 36, 25 uh, to 28 in a slightly different uh, format. There it's related to cleansing. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. So that's the similarity between the Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 passage and the Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28, is they both talk about being given, that Israel will be given a new heart. And that new heart is defined here in relationship to a cleansing process by God, and it is accompanied by these Holy Spirit being placed in them. And it is, uh, in, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it's, uh, this is identified as the circumcision of the heart. So this is what we see in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. The point you need to remember from this is that the Old Testament makes it very clear it's not overt physical circumcision. That was just a symbolic act to to help understand an abstract doctrine such as uh, the circumcision of the heart. But then we get to Jeremiah 9, 24 and 25, where God says, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. See, it's not ritual, it's relationship. It's that you have to be able to have a relationship with God. Now, an unrighteous person cannot have a relationship with righteous God. And as God says in Isaiah, all of our works of righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So how do we, as those who can only perform unrighteousness, become righteous in God's sight? only by an act of God's grace. And we have to be righteous to come to understand and know God. So God says to the Jews in Jeremiah 9, 24, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And he uses that phrase, the the name associated with the giving of the covenant of Moses, uh, Yahweh, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. This is Paul's theme in Romans. What I'm pointing out here is what Paul says in Romans 2, uh, uh, 16 here, or 2.12 down through the first uh, part of chapter 3 isn't different from the Old Testament. He is talking, he, he goes to the Old Testament to show that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, emphasize an uncircumcised heart. It's not, phys- it's not the physical ritual. It is a spiritual reality that matters. So, and, and this is a result of the understanding the righteousness of God, which is the theme of Romans. So, uh, that I am the Lord, exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For the, in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, he says, the days are coming that I will punish all men who are, and the uh, New King James Version says, circumcised with the uncircumcised. And uh, the New American Standards does translate it a little better, something like uh, circumcised yet uncircumcised. Now, I put up on here, this is where we ended last time, and I indicated this with a comparison with Acts 7.51, so we transition to the New Testament. But the Hebrew word here, or the phrase is mul, which literally means to be circumcised with the foreskin. Uh, 
You're circumcised, but you still have the foreskin. In other words, you're black and white. You know, you're both. So it has the idea of being circumcised yet still uncircumcised. They are physically circumcised, but they have an uncircumcised heart. Now we're going to get into the New Testament. What I want to do is take you through three or four passages. So just turn back with me a few chapters, if you're in Romans chapter 2, to Acts Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We'll see circumcision brought up in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 7, but we need to understand a little bit of the context of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And that tells us something because obviously God the Holy Spirit wanted all of this material recorded and not just sort of a, a summary or not just an abridged version and or it wasn't when Stephen spoke, it wasn't an abridged version. He had a long-winded message. And we have to understand something about it to understand the significance of circumcision within the context of, of Stephen's message. The context is that, that Stephen is accused of blasphemy, being an enemy of the law, at the last part of chapter 6. We're told in verse 8 that he was full of faith and power. He's spiritually mature, and uh, he was one of those who were designated as apostolic assistants in the first part of the chapter. And he performed miracles, signs, and wonders. In verse 8, as credentials of the message, as we've studied in our study of Acts, and, but yet he had opposition. There was a group from one of the synagogues in Jerusalem who began to dispute and argue with him, and they could not resist, we're told in verse 10, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So no matter how we studied this on Tuesday, a lot of connections here with what we studied Tuesday night, doesn't matter how clearly you present the gospel. If people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they're going to hate you for it. They will react to it. They will misrepresent you. They will ridicule you. They will revile you. They will not accept what you say, uh, because not because you haven't presented a good argument. The better your argument, the more they may despise you. Because the bottom line, as I pointed out Tuesday night, is volition. They don't want to believe the truth. And the more you convince them that the truth is rational and correct, the more their conscience will be pricked and the more they will hate you for exposing the fact that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We see this a lot in our nation today when you see the just the, the, the venomous way in which many people uh, react and misrepresent and revile Christians today. So uh, Stephen is, becomes a, a victim of this misrepresentation, and in order to get, gain their way, what they do is they are going to uh, induce certain men to perjury, which is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. So verse 10 says they, uh, or 11, they secretly induce men to false witness, to say that uh, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they got the people all stirred up, verse 12, and they came upon him, they seized him, and they brought him in front of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, 70, uh, and these are mostly uh, Sadducees and the uh, high priest. 
verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who say, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, it's the temple and the law. So they are clearly in violation of the law that they're trying to defend. The hypocrisy is uh, monumental. And so as they brought these charges against him, then we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest says, are these things so? Now, does Peter answer the question? No. See, I, this is just another example of what I've taught you all along. Don't always answer people's questions. Any good politicians this way, they never answer the question some reporter answers. They come in with their own agenda, and they get asked some question, and they don't even answer it. They get their message out. And our message is the gospel. And Stephen has his message, and he's not going to answer the question because the issue isn't whether or not he's said this. Right? He's not going to get involved in a he said, she said, tit for tat kind of argument back and forth with the um, his accusers. What he's going to do is he's going to go to the Bible, and he's going to demonstrate biblically a pattern. And he doesn't start in Genesis 1. Now, we'll see later on that when... When Paul confronts unbelievers and they're Gentiles, he goes to Genesis 1. Because first you have to understand the Creator God. Well, that's not a problem with the Sanhedrin and with the Jews. And they already have an understanding of Genesis 1 to 11. At least at that point they did. Now they don't, but at that point they did. And, and so he's, the, the, Stephen starts with Abraham, and he moves forward from Abraham. And the first thing that he does as he goes through, is he points out that, that the foundation for everything in the Hebrew Scriptures is God's call of Abraham. That's the foundation. And then he goes through the descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, Jacob's uh, 12 sons. And now we get the first set of reaction. There's the, the 11 of the sons just could care less about God or spiritual things, and they're as pagan as the Canaanites, and yet, then there's Joseph, the chosen one. He's not the eldest. He's not the uh, chronologically first son, but he's the one that God, that God has chosen. So they hate him. They're jealous of him. They despise him, and they reject him. And they uh, they're, first they're going to ki- kill him, and then they get talked out of that. And so they uh, sell him to the Midianites. You know the story. Sell him to the Midianites, who as a slave, and he t- and they're, he's taken to Egypt, and he is sold as a slave to to Potiphar. So it's a first example where God's chosen person is rejected by his brethren who oppose him. And then he goes to the second example, which is Moses. And Moses is God's chosen leader, but the Jewish people also rejected him. And uh, while Moses is up on uh, Mount Sinai receiving the law, the people down below uh, become bored, and they convince Aaron to manufacture an idol for them, and they turn to idolatry. And in this, he mentions the uh, temple of Moloch in verse 43, and that this set up a pattern that was played out through the rest of the uh, Hebrew Scriptures up to the destruction of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And again and again, what happened when God sent a prophet? They killed him. And his point is that 
he's, as he's talking to the Sanhedrin, is you have a pattern of always rejecting God's messenger. When God has a message related to grace, you kill the messenger. You despise the messenger. You reject the messenger. And he's pointing out that they, um, they always uh, reject God's grace. And then, uh, and the result of that, he says, is that God brings judgment on you. Look at verse 42. As a result of their going into the idolatry of the golden calf, Stephen points out, then God turned and gave them up. That's the same concept that we have over in Romans chapter 1. God gave them up to worship the host of heaven. The host of heaven there is a reference to the fact that these gods... And goddesses that they worshipped in the the pantheon of the Canaanites were associated with the stars, and they're associated with nature. Paganism always worships the creation, always worships nature, the modern form, as you've seen in some of the uh, videos we showed from the uh, uh, dealing with the uh, resisting the green dragon, is the... um, uh, the fact that paganism always uh, always worships worships nature, and in modern environmentalism is just a modern manifestation of the same nature worship that has uh, been a problem down through uh, the centuries ever since uh, uh, the family got off the boat with Noah. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And then uh, here in verse 42, he quotes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphon, images which you made to worship, and I will carry uh, you away beyond Babylon. And so it is uh, a prophecy there of their future removal from the land. And then when we get down to verse 51, he drives the point home. He says, you stiff-necked, what does that mean? Arrogant. He just pulls that verbiage right out of Deuteronomy. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. See, he's applying what Moses said in Deuteronomy and what we read there in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He's taking that concept and he's nailing them with it. He's indicting them with it right there. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. He didn't just manufacture this. Stephen knew Deuteronomy. You stiff-necked, let's put that up on the screen. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He added something. You know, it's not only mentally, but you've covered up your ears. You, you don't want to hear the truth. And he could almost see them sitting there as he's going through this, wanting to just stick their fingers in their ears, and not listen to him. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. And he's already established a pattern. See, in terms of, see what Stephen's doing here is what Peter said to do in 1 Peter 3.15. He's giving a defense. He's giving them an answer for the hope that is in them. He's, He's just doing classic biblical apologetics. He is showing that He's giving a rational argument, but notice he doesn't answer their question. He does it in sort of an implicit way. 
he goes around the barn, but he just he just skewers them with the pattern that's down through history. He doesn't yield to their assumptions as he is presenting the truth. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Now, he obviously never read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. I remember one time as a young pastor, somebody actually suggested that, you know, you can be much very successful as a pastor if you would learn that. I said, well, Jesus didn't know it and Paul didn't know it. I don't think I need to know it. Verse 52, then he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name one. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, the righteous one. That is the suffering servant of Isaiah. They killed Isaiah. And of whom, that is, in relation to the righteous one, you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have, re- and, um, and he says, then he says, who have received the law by the direction of angels. So from this passage, we understand that angels were involved in uh, the process of God giving the law to Moses, uh, who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And he just now, you, you sit there thinking, there we go. Okay, and have not kept it. They think that they've been keeping the law, that they've been keeping the mitzvot. And what Stephen says, as Paul will say, is, no, you're not, and you know that. And they don't want to be told that they're not keeping the law because if they're not keeping the law, if they're not keeping the mitzvot, then they know they can't ever please God. Now, this becomes another problem uh, later on in the early church, and it's a problem in the first place that Paul went uh, on his first missionary journey. So let's turn over a few books to Galatians. Galatians. Now, Galatia was located in the south-central part of what is now Turkey, modern Turkey. Back then, it was all part of, of Asia Minor, called Anatolia, which is just the Greek word for east, because when you wake up over in Athens and you look over towards Turkey, you're looking towards the rising sun, Anatolia. So that's why that area was called Anatolia, the rising sun. Well, there's a problem there because after Paul would go to these various towns, and first thing he would do is go to the synagogue and begin to explain uh, from the Torah why Jesus was the Messiah, and that now he had died for sin, and that salvation was by grace, there were these groups of Jews who just took umbrage with him and began to say, that follow him along, say he was all wrong, that you still have to be circumcised. You still have to follow the Mosaic law. And so they were introducing a works gospel. And the Galatians, who originally are saved because they understand the gospel, immediately and they understood grace, they immediately fall from grace. They fall away from their understanding of grace. That's what that term means later on in Galatians. They just, they, they, they just forget about grace, and they just get sucked into this false gospel. And this is why uh, Paul is so harsh with them at the very beginning of the epistle. And he says, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Why? 
Because if you don't believe the right gospel, you don't get saved. And then he goes on to talk about his own experience and his call to becoming an apostle that previously he had uh, conducted himself well in Judaism. Uh, Verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And that zeal became hyper-zeal, and he did everything he can to destroy and kill and execute every person who was a Christian. And then he said, It pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me that I might uh, preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In other words, Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus, and I immediately saw the truth. And then he said, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he had three years out where God trained him. Then he says that he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and at that time he took Titus with him, and he doesn't even uh, see that make he, he doesn't have uh, Titus circumcised. This is down in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. I went up by revelation, that is, God revealed this to him, that it was his will for him to go to Jerusalem. God doesn't do that anymore. God doesn't tell you, you need to go to New York City. You need to go to Austin. God doesn't do that anymore. He gives you your word, and you have to decide whether you can best glorify God in New York City or in Austin. I know most of you think that it would be impossible to glorify God in New York City, but nevertheless, God does have missionaries that go there. And, <clears throat> But God was revealing himself at this time in this way because revelation was, special revelation was still being given before the close of the canon. So in verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, who's a Greek and uncircumcised, was compelled to be circumcised. See, the apostles understood that circumcision isn't necessary for salvation. So chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians deal with the fact that is there any ritual that has to be performed in order to gain merit with God? And Paul's conclusion is none whatsoever, and he clinches this with his great statement in verse 16, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the Torah, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Then there's another problem. The second problem is that... Not only were they confused about getting saved or justified by circumcision, but now they're going to say, well, we may not get justified by circumcision, but we're going to be sanctified by circumcision, by the works of the law. And so Paul slaps them around a little more, that is, rhetorically. In Galatians 3, 2 and 3, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of the Spirit? Well, they have to admit it was by the hearing of or the hearing of faith, rather, by the hearing of faith. And then he goes on to say, are you so foolish? 
You started by the Spirit, and are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Well, that, see, that doesn't work. You can't start on on one basis and shift in midstream to another basis. It's It begins with the Spirit and continues by the Spirit, or you don't have biblical Christianity. So then in verse 13 he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because see, what the law showed was that we can't do it. That's where Paul's going to go in the rest of Romans 3. We can't do it. The law wasn't given to show people how to be saved. The law was given to show people that they can't do enough to be saved. And that's a curse. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, because it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Now skip over to chapter 5. As he comes to his conclusion, that's where he finally comes down to talking about circumcision. And Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. See, it's not the physical ritual, but faith working through love. Now, he's not talking about justification here. That was in chapters 1 and 2. He's talking about spiritual growth, faith working with love, spiritual growth. It's what's happening on the inside, the circumcision of the heart, not what's happening on the outside. And so in Galatians 5, verse 6, he brings this issue up and he says uh, this, actually it started in verse 5, he said, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. See, hope is a future, an expectation of a future reality. Hope is not a strategy. A hope you can believe in is not a strategy. Hope is a mental attitude. It is an expectation of a future reality. It's not a strategy for improving government or society. So through the Spirit, we wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. It's righteousness by faith, not circumcision. And then in verse 7, he goes on to talk about the significance of love and that in this section, it is love rather than the law that is the fulfillment of what the law was really trying to focus on. And in this section, he references circumcision again in verse 11 and says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. See, if he just says, oh, we can get circumcised, there's no more opposition. The Jewish opposition will evaporate. The offense is the cross. And the reason it's the cross is because of the cross works are dead. Human merit ends. There's no value in what we do. We can't bring anything of value to God. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His mercy He has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 15 He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor, and I don't know how, uh, nor uncircumcision, I don't know how Acts 7, I just must just must have hit the paste key in the wrong place. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. 
but a new creation. It's internal. Now, in Colossians 2.11, Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That connects it back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It's got to be a circumcision that's spiritual, not physical. In him you were also circumcised by the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. This is where we see the real spiritual symbolic meaning of circumcision. Just as baptism, where a person is taken and plunged into, immersed into water and comes out, is a picture of positional cleansing so that we can be united and identified with Christ Circumcision was a picture of the removal of something, which uh, of the flesh, which is a picture of our losing the tyranny of the flesh or the sin nature. So Paul identifies this by saying that circumcision is the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. See, it's not saying that, that we're sinless. It is that there is a, a separation that occurs at salvation, we call, also call it positional sanctification, where we are positionally set apart from the dominion of the sin nature by the circumcision of Christ. It's not circumcision that relates to Christ, but circumcision made by Christ um, upon us. And then in Colossians 3, 9 through 11, Paul will say, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. See, positionally, we've put off the sin nature. That doesn't mean you aren't ever going to sin again. It means that dominion, that power is broken. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. And you've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. That's the process of, of, of spiritual growth. Putting on the new man is our new, we're a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 521. We put on the new who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, whereas there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slavery free, Christ is all and in all. Circumcision isn't of value. Physical ritual circumcision is not of value. The issue is what goes on in the soul. So this sets up where we're going to go come back to next time and the rest of Romans 2 and move right on smoothly into uh, Romans 3 is this condemnation that Paul has, he's already condemned the moral person, pointing out that no matter how moral they are, they always end up becoming uh, immoral, violating their own conscience. But, and among the Jews who put their hope in the law and in ritual, it's, he's, he's saying even the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses, saw that it wasn't physical ritual, it was the physical circumcision, it was the circumcision of the heart that was the real issue in terms of a person's relationship to God. Father, we thank you for our study this evening. It helps us to understand grace better, to understand that you must do everything, for we can do nothing to be righteous in your eyes. We can only be righteous when we trust in Christ and you give us his righteousness. It doesn't make us perfect. It doesn't make us righteous. It is the basis for a declaration judicially that we are righteous. And on the basis of what he has done, we have, we have a relationship with you. And it is not a ritual.
that you're looking for, but a relationship based on a circumcision of the heart. Father, we thank you for what we've learned in this study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.